you'd like to participate, please feel, feel free. Okay, we're back in the story. I hope you're excited about the story. Uh, man, it's, it's been one of my favorite things that we've ever done at Center Church. And uh, this week, we're going to talk about the prophets. Uh, so let's, uh, let's have a little on-ramp for this. Uh, Christmas is over. Does anybody get the post-Christmas letdown? Kind of like, okay, the good part of winter is over. Now is the rest of it. It's unfortunate that the good part ends like five days in to winter. Uh, but uh, Christmas is over. It's kind of it's behind us. Does anybody get the post-Christmas letdown? I do. Uh, it was on Wednesday this year, so a lot of people had to go back to work. Uh, and a lot of people ended up feeling like this guy right here on, the, on that Thursday when they went back to work. You know the face. Uh, if you went back to work, did anything happen at work on Thursday and Friday? Uh, for a lot of you, probably not. You were just there. You just had to be there. Uh, the celebrating's over, and for me, I'm not really a cold weather guy. So basically, what I do after Christmas is I wait for June. That's, that's what I spend a lot of time doing. Celebrating Jesus never gets old, but there's certain complications that come with Christmas, uh, especially if you're married uh, or as your family grows, there's different types of complications that come along, like trying to figure out, for me, trying to figure out exactly what Brandy wants for Christmas, trying to figure out exactly what your spouse would like for you to get, because you're going to get them something, and so you're trying to figure out what they want. Every year, Brandy says, guess what? Guess what she says? Don't get me anything, right? The same thing your spouse says. I don't need anything this year. Let's just make it about the children or whatever, some variation of that. And after 20 years of being married, I'm smart enough to know that she's lying when she says that. Don't get me anything. Let's not get each other anything. Well, I'm going to get her something, but I also don't want to be the husband that gets her like the zonk gift, you know, wah, wah. Have you ever gotten a gift and it was like so lame that you had to like really work to pretend like you were excited? Has that ever happened to you before? No, just me. Uh, okay, I'm going to have to get Pastor Rick back up here to give you a, come on, people. That's, that's what he does. That's, that's happened to me before. Uh, I've gotten the zonk gift. Uh, picking the right gift is tough because I'm on my own. Brittany doesn't give me a lot of cues. She'll say, oh, I don't want anything. And like, that's all I get. Uh, there's really only one way to get the right gift, and that is for us to go to the mall and for Brandy to say, I want that, and point directly at it. And then I say, oh, well, why don't, why don't you go over to that store? I'm just going to look at something. And then it miraculously shows up on Christmas morning. Like, that's pretty much the only way that it's going to be the one she wants, because sometimes you just need someone to tell you what to do. Just, just tell me what to do. I had this boss once who was like, he was big on like empowering the people who worked for him. Oh, you know, it's, it's totally, it's your call. You do it. But then after the fact, if it wasn't exactly what he had in his mental picture, it wasn't right. Like, have you ever been in that situation? And so uh, one time I was working later on for someone else at a church in Puyallup. Uh, Pastor Chris Hansler was my boss. Some of you guys have met Pastor Chris. And uh, we were doing this remodel in our main gathering space, and I needed to order some new screens for the projectors. And I was like, I found myself like deliberating for like weeks. Like, it's a screen, Frederick, buy a screen, right? But I'm like, I got to get the right one. So finally, I just, I went to his office because this was easier than ordering the screen. I went to him and I explained to him, I used to have this boss who would say, it's all you, do what you want to do. But then after the fact, and you know, if it wasn't quite what he wanted, he'd be upset. So I explained that to Chris and he said, well, listen, I promise I'm not going to do that to you. You just, you just buy the ones you want. And, and it's all good. I said, okay, thanks for taking that pressure off. And as I'm going out the office door, he says, but make sure it's the right ones. It was super <laughs> hilarious. 
Sometimes you just need somebody to tell you what to do, right? Even if, it's, even if it seems unimportant, like sometimes you just need someone to tell you what to do. Uh, there's a lot of times that I need that. There's this quote on the card that was on your seat from Francis Chan. He probably didn't originate this, uh, but he just said it most recently. He said, our greatest fear should not be of failure, but of succeeding at things that don't matter. Sometimes in life it would be so helpful if God would just come along and just tell me what matters, right? Just tell me what to put my energy into. Well, this week we're in chapter 15 of the story. We're trekking through the whole narrative of the Bible. Uh, If you don't have a copy of the story and you'd like one, be sure and stop at the Connect table. We'd love to give you one of those. We're in this time period where God used people known as prophets to communicate to his people. And the nation is in a spot where they need someone to just come along and just tell us what to do because they're in all kinds of mess, mostly at their own hand. The people are, they're confused. Their nation's in chaos. Uh, The nation's actually divided. If you were here last week, Uh, they have actually separated into two separate camps. They have two separate kings. Uh, They're worshiping all kinds of false gods. Uh, They're adding to their sorrows at their own hand, and it's led by this wicked king named Ahab. And the only thing worse than Ahab is his wicked er wife, Jezebel. And so God sends this prophet named Elijah. Uh, We've talked about Elijah somewhat recently, so hopefully this will be a little bit familiar. He sends Elijah to turn the people back to him. Uh, He was, hopefully this will be familiar to you. We talked about a separate incident from Elijah's life not too long ago. So let me ask you this question. Uh, Get a mental image. When I say the word prophet, what do you think of? I'll tell you what I think of. I think of a crazy guy downtown, usually wearing a sign around his neck that says something like, repent for the end is nigh, or something along those lines. And most of the time he's screaming through uh, like a megaphone. And he's the only one who doesn't know that we can't understand what you're saying. Something about hellfire, judgment, day of judgment, you know, uh, wrath of God, something like that. But like, that's what I think of when I think of a prophet. That's the mental picture uh, that kind of comes to my mind. Now, I know some normal people who have what the New Testament describes as the gift of prophecy, uh, the ability to understand some things that maybe the rest of us don't realize yet. Uh, Totally, I'm totally on board with that. Uh, But Elijah is a full-time prophet. He's God's voice to the people. Uh, He actually is what the person with the bullhorn is trying to be. He's God's voice to the people. Uh, Now, I always mention this whenever we talk about Old Testament prophets, okay? Uh, Today, in our world, if someone self-proclaimed to be a prophet and they said, hey, Jesus is going to come back in 2012, and it didn't happen then we would all be like, yeah, that was weird, and then we'd go on with our life, right? Not that big a deal. Uh, But back then, in the Old Testament, if somebody said they were a prophet, and they said, this is going to happen, and it didn't happen, they would literally drag that person outside the city and throw rocks at them until they're dead. So there's pretty good incentive to actually be a prophet if you're going to make that claim. Uh, And Elijah is the real deal. So Elijah's not the street screamer, Uh, he's the real thing. Simply put, a prophet is this, God's messenger. That's actually what the word means. A prophet is a messenger, God's messenger. And he would use these messengers to get the people's attention. Uh, Has God ever used a circumstance in your life to get your attention? Uh, It's funny how you can be sort of cruising along doing your own thing, 
but then calamity hits, and it's like all of a sudden, I actually really care what God has to say right now. Uh, if you've ever feel guilt, felt guilty about that, like totally ignoring God until something goes wrong, um, don't feel guilty because you're exactly like the rest of us. Every single person in here, including the pastor, has done that exact same thing. So that's, that's totally normal, and God's going to use Elijah to get their attention. Uh, it's better when God uses a person or a relationship than it is when like, he has to use a calamity. He still uses spiritual authorities. Uh, there's people in my life who are spiritual authorities, maybe uh, spiritual big brother figures, different uh, pastors or leaders that I've had along the way who have, God's used to speak into my life. He, he still does that all the time. And that's what's happening right here through Elijah. So here's the deal with Elijah. Uh, he lived shortly after uh, the nation had split in two, uh, under the reign of the eighth king of Israel. Remember last week we talked about Jeroboam and Rehoboam and the dividing of the kingdom. Uh, we called them Jerry and Ray Ray to keep from getting them confused. Ahab's a little bit later on. He's the eighth king of Israel. And my perspective of a king or a queen, I think of like the queen of England, where she's been the queen for like 170 years. <laughs> Uh, and still apparently going pretty strong. I, I, I don't, I, that's not what this is like. Uh, there would be turnover pretty often, right? Because you'd have one king, but then a handful of insiders would rise up and overthrow that king, and it's impossible to keep them all straight. But turnover happens pretty fast. So Ahab's the eighth king, but it's not like 600 years have gone by. Like It's only been a few decades since the split happened. He's not a good king. He's led the nation, as I said before, in the exact opposite direction of God's plan A for the people. Now, it would be easy to look at Ahab and say, gosh, what an idiot. You know, what's, he, what's he doing? But there's actually a lot of ways that we can relate to Ahab. So um, since we're just a real transparent, sincere group of people, we're going to do a little group exercise right here uh, to explore the ways that we actually can relate to Ahab. I'm going to give you an example of one of his traits and we're going to respond together by saying, I've been there. If it's ever been true for you at any point in your life, just respond by saying, I've been there. Okay, let's try it together. On the count of three, we're going to say, I've been there. One, two, three. I've been there. Okay. Ahab suffered the consequences of his own poor decisions. I've been there. Ahab often acted selfishly. I've been there. Ahab sometimes disregarded what he knew God was telling him and did his own thing instead. I've been there. Ahab was married to an evil woman. That actually got a response. Yikes. Our problems are deeper than I thought they were. Ahab's wife was named Jezebel, if that tells you anything. Uh, and she's like the Jezebel, by the way. Uh, she's like the one that all others are named for. Uh, under Ahab and Jezebel, the nation has just strayed so far from God. And God tells Elijah, I want you to confront Ahab and let him know that he's leading the people in the wrong direction, but I'm about to recapture their hearts. And so what happens is uh, a friend of Elijah's named Obadiah. Now, there's a book in the Bible that is named for Obadiah, same guy, also a prophet. Obadiah works in the palace, and he arranges a meeting between King Ahab and Elijah. And they meet up, and it's like a scene from a Clint Eastwood movie. Ahab says to him, it's in 1 Kings 18, he says, so it is you. And the name calling starts immediately. He calls Elijah Elijah. 
a troubler of Israel. You troubler of Israel. The name calling is just like, right, starts right now, which is exactly what you would expect from a political figure. So uh, not that much has changed in 3,000 years. But of course, Elijah, being a man of God, uh, he responds by saying, basically, I'm rubber, you're glue, right? Like, I know you are, but what am I? Uh, it's good to know, not much has changed. So on page 204 in the story, if you're following along, it's 1 Kings 18, verse 18. This is Elijah's response. I have not made trouble for Israel, Elijah replied, but you and your father's family have. I'm rubber, you're glue. You have abandoned the Lord's commands and have followed the Baals. The Baals are just like a, a system of false gods. Now summon the people from all over Israel to meet me on Mount Carmel and bring the 450 prophets of Baal and the 400 prophets of Asherah who eat at Jezebel's table. So Ahab sent word throughout all Israel and assembled the prophets on Mount Carmel. Now, just as a rule of thumb, if someone who's a known prophet, a known messenger from God, ever challenges you to a duel, the answer is no thank you. <laughs> Ahab is not that smart, but just as a rule of thumb, don't accept. Uh, did I mention that he was a victim of his own poor decision making? Next, next verse says, Elijah went before the people and said, how long will you waver between two opinions? If the Lord is God, follow him. But if Baal is God, follow him. I mean, that's like the most logical thing ever, right? God is constantly putting the decision between life and death, blessing and curse before his people. And Elijah says, if the Lord is God, follow him. If Baal is God, follow him instead. But the people said nothing. This is a very human moment, a really critical juncture. Like the sirens are going off and there's like a flashing neon arrow pointing that says, come this way. God's, God's calling out to them, come this direction. And Elijah said, if God is God, then follow him. But what do the people do? Nothing. They don't, they don't reject. They don't accept. The people said nothing. Uh, the FAA did a study that I think explains this phenomenon. Like they seem just really foolish right now. Uh, the FAA did a study a few years back uh, they were studying the behavior patterns of crowds in crisis. What do people do when they're in a group and some sort of a crisis or critical moment happens? And what they found was that about one out of 10 people actually engage in counterproductive behavior. Uh, that might be like they freak out and start screaming and create more chaos, uh, or they add to the problem in some way. Uh, about one out of every 10 people, about 10% of people. Don't be freak out guy, okay? First rule is don't be that person. But then they found that about 80% of people, the overwhelming majority of people, when there's a critical moment, when there's a crisis, do nothing. They wait and see what happens. Uh, isn't that interesting? Because we all kind of want to think like, oh yeah, I'm, I'm the person who's going to take action. But the statistics say the overwhelming majority of us will wait and see what happens. We'll just, we'll do nothing. And then there's about 10% of the people who are on the solution side of the problem. They're going to lead the charge towards some kind of resolution, evacuation, whatever it, whatever it might be. And when I look at this situation, I can't help but wonder, what would have happened if one person would have stood up and said, you know, Elijah's right. We do need to change. Would that somehow have just freed everyone else up to follow their lead? Maybe, maybe it would. I mean, it's, it's likely. I, I don't know. Um, but I wonder... Would everyone else have all of a sudden been free? Uh, it is, as they mentioned, not quiet uh, over in the big kid zone. All good. That's the sound of fun. I'm totally for it. 
Page 204, it's 1 Kings 18.22. Then Elijah said to them, I am the only one of the Lord's prophets left, but Baal has 450 prophets. Now get two bulls for us. Let Baal's prophets choose one for themselves and let them cut the bull into pieces and put it on the wood, but not set fire to it. I will prepare the other bull and put it on the wood, but not set fire to it. Then you call on the name of your God, and I will call on the name of the Lord. The God who answers by fire, he is God. Like, that's the obvious thing to do. That's Elijah's way of saying, basically, like, you guys want a piece? Let's do this. He's throwing down. Uh, it's pretty impressive that there's 850 of them, and he's, like, ready for confrontation. Elijah said to the prophets of Baal, choose one of the bulls and prepare it first, since there are so many of you. Call on the name of your God. But do not light the fire. So they took the bull given them and prepared it. Then they called on the name of Baal from morning until noon. Baal, answer us, they shouted. But there was no response. No one answered. And they danced around the altar that they had made. Not surprisingly, nothing is happening. They're dancing around. They're crying out. They're singing songs. Uh, Come on, Bailey, light my fire. I was debating about whether or not I should say that, but it was just... Uh, okay, okay, not, not good. Uh, goodness gracious, great, bales of fire. Okay. At noon, that was dumb, I shouldn't have said that. At noon, Elijah began to taunt them. Shout louder, he said. Surely he is a god. Perhaps he is deep in thought or busy or maybe traveling. Uh, maybe he is sleeping and must be awakened. So they shouted louder and slashed themselves with swords and spears as was their custom, until their blood flowed. Midday passed, and they continued their frantic prophesying until the time for the evening sacrifice, but there was no response, no one answered, no one paid attention. Uh, This sounds absurd, does it not? It sounds crazy. I just point out kind of a similarity, kind of a parallel to our day. Uh, We cry out to different gods all the time. when we're, we're frustrated or unfulfilled or maybe sad, depressed, angry, we cry out to gods of recreation, uh, gods of relationships, substances, alcohol, uh, achievement, material, etc. And not surprisingly, nothing happens. Nothing good anyway. But watch what happens next. Then Elijah said to all the people, come here to me. They came to him and he, repaired the, and he prepared the altar of the Lord, which had been torn down. Elijah took 12 stones, one for each of the tribes descended from Jacob, to whom the word of the Lord had come, saying, Your name shall be Israel. With the stones, he built an altar in the name of the Lord, and he dug a trench around it large enough to hold two seas of seed. He arranged the wood, cut the bull into pieces, and laid it on the wood. Then he said to them, Fill four large jars with water and pour it on the offering and on the wood. Do it again, he said, and they did it again. Do it a third time, he ordered, and they did it a third time. The water ran down around the altar and even filled the trench. Now, in my opinion, uh, fire from heaven is impressive with or without the water, but he just wants to make sure, I guess. He's going big. At the time of the sacrifice, the prophet Elijah stepped forward and prayed, Lord, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Israel... Let it be known today that you are God in Israel and that I am your servant and have done all these things at your command. Answer me, Lord, answer me, so these people will know that you, Lord, are God 
and that you are turning their hearts back again. Then the fire of the Lord fell and burned up the sacrifice, the wood, the stones, and the soil, and also licked up the water in the trench. Uh, Now that's a pretty clear sign, is it not? Uh, Elijah says, make a choice, follow the real God, and the people apparently don't know what to do based on their silence. They're not sure, apparently, but I think their questions have been definitively answered at this point. And the last verse says, when all the people saw this, they fell prostrate and cried, the Lord, he is God, the Lord, he is God. In the end, God wins. Not much has really changed in 3,000 years since this happened. In the end, God still, God still wins. The people on that day saw this incredible sign from God uh, so that there could be no doubt in their mind about, about whether or not they should follow him. And I think we would probably say, yeah, that would be helpful. Now, that would be super helpful to me. Like fire from heaven is pretty, pretty convincing. Um, but do you know that God is speaking to us even now? Uh, do you know that that's, that's still happening? He's, he's changed his methods. Uh, I've not seen fire from heaven in my lifetime. Maybe you have. Uh, but Romans 1.20 uh, explains a few things to us. This is what it says. It says, For since the creation of the world, God's invisible qualities, his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly seen, being understood from what has been made, so the people are without excuse. In other words... You can look at the universe in grand scale, or you could even look at uh, any living thing, you know, the cells, the cells that make up all living matter, or anything in between, right? Micro scale or macro scale. You can look at creation, and you can see what God has made. And the Bible says that if we see the creation, we've seen enough to know that there is, in fact, a God. Uh, It's convincing enough, the Bible says, that no excuse will do. So uh, my options are I can kind of think I don't know where it came from. Maybe it just happened as the result of cosmic process and time. Or I can say I don't know how he did it, but God made all of this. I can kind of go either way. But, But whichever I choose, the Bible says enough of God is evidenced just from creation that we are without excuse. So we might say, well, yeah, I believe there's a God. Uh, I think that for me, the evidence is compelling. I can see that. But, but he, just doesn't ex- he just doesn't speak clearly enough for me to know what to do. Okay, see if this sounds familiar. Uh, when I was a young adult, uh, I had this period of limbo, trying to figure out what to do with myself, what to do with my life. And I often found myself praying... God, just tell me what to do. Like, if God would just tell me what to do, I'd do it. I don't even care what it is. Just tell me what to do, and I'll do it. Uh, You ever been in a moment of just stuck in a pattern of indecision? Uh, I believe that God exists, but he doesn't speak clearly enough for me to know what to do. Check this out. Hebrews 1, verse 1, it says, In the past, God spoke to our ancestors through the prophets, like Elijah, at many times and in various ways. But in these last days, and when the Bible uses the phrase last days, it's generally referring to the the period of the church, uh, the modern era where the church of Christ is God's agency on the earth. In these last days, he has spoken to us by his son, whom he appointed heir of all things and through whom he made the universe. When we understand who Jesus is, we have everything we need to know 
about God, and we have everything we need to know to understand his plans for us and his plans, his will in the world. That's the way that he's chosen to speak to us. In the past, he chose to speak through prophets in various ways, but now he's chosen to speak to us through his son. That's his chosen mechanism. So if you've ever wondered, like, is it really necessary for me to, you know, know what the Bible says, to read it, to have input from other people? Is, is it really necessary? This is why the answer is yes. Uh, it's not because you just need a disciplined regimen in order to be close to God. It's because God has chosen to speak to us through his son. And how do we come to understand his son? Through the scripture. That's how he's chosen to speak to us. So uh, now that we just walked through this account of Elijah and we kind of understand, okay, this was how God spoke to the people back then through the prophets, and this is how God speaks to us now through his word, through our relationship to the church. Uh, I just want to make two points. I just want to point out two things that I think are going to mess you up in the most wonderful way uh, if you'll allow that to happen. First one is just an observation, and that is that Elijah didn't create the miracle He just opened the door for God to do the miracle. Uh, When everybody else was busy looking around to one thing or another, whatever their false God might be, uh, hoping for fulfillment, they really lost faith in the possibility that God might want to do something incredible. Elijah still had room in his headspace for the possibility of a miracle. Now, that sounds like a simple thing, but but let me just ask you practically. It's rhetorical. Don't answer out loud. As you go through your day, is there really room in your thought process for the possibility of a miracle? I mean, practically speaking, uh, for me, most of the time, the answer is no. I'll just be transparent. But Elijah had room in his head, in his view of the world, for the possibility that God might just want to do something incredible. He might just want to blow his mind. He had room for that still. Um, In our day, kind of post-enlightenment, the age of reason, we don't have a lot of room for that. Uh, I think maybe we should. Elijah didn't have to create the miracle. I can't create miracles. He could have called on God, and God might have said no. That that could have happened. But what he did was he made space in his view of what was happening for God to intervene. Everybody else had moved on, but Elijah kept the door of his heart open to the possibility of God's game-changing power. Now, here's what I find interesting, Uh, almost kind of unfair. Elijah didn't have the power to create the miracle. I don't have the power to create the miracle, but he did have the power to hinder the miracle. Like, he did, I do have the power to hinder the miracle. Like, what if Elijah would have just stayed back in the cave and just been like, oh, yeah, they're so mean, they don't like me. I got hurt last time I went out there. It's probably going to happen again. It's probably not going to work. Like, what if he would have just stayed in the cave? He could have totally just closed the door on what God wanted to do. Listen, it's time for us to make space for the potential that God might want to do something spectacular. I think we just need to keep that door open. I'm not suggesting you do anything crazy or absurd or even try to make the miracle happen. I'm saying it's just time for us to keep the door open in our hearts to the possibility that God might want to do something incredible. Uh, I think we can learn that from Elijah. So that's the first thing. Now, a couple of years ago, it's been about three years ago, we decided to take our kids to Disneyland. Um, if you got kids and you're deciding, like, when's the right age? Should we ever do that? There's never a right time. Uh, 
So, but we decided, like Brandy, I mentioned this before, Brandy's been bugging me about like a surprise trip to Disneyland for our kids since before we had kids, uh, like forever. And uh, which gave me a good on-ramp, time to like mentally and financially prepare. So that was helpful. Thank you. Um, so on the day we got ready to leave, and we had to, we had to be at the airport at like 4.30 in the morning, some absurd time like that. So we had to wake the kids up way earlier than they normally would. If you know our kids, you can probably guess which one of these is which, but I'm not going to give their names away. Uh, so I go in to wake up the kids. Uh, I go to the first one and like, boom, on their feet. Yes, we're going. It's time. I go in to wake up uh, the other, another one, and uh, this one is not quite so enthusiastic, not so much of a morning person, more like, mm, okay, Disneyland, fine. I go to the third one. Hey, it's time to wake up. We're, we're going to Disneyland. It's time. Today's the day. We got to get to the airport. Let's go do this. Okay. Uh, immediately back to sleep. And uh, so I decided to let that go for a few minutes, right? And, and uh, probably 20 minutes go by, and I go back in. You know, we got to get serious about this. And so, uh, so I'm like, hey, it's time to go. We're going to Disneyland today. Nothing. You need to look at me. I'm getting, I'm getting their attention. Look at me. We got to go to the airport so we can go to Disneyland. And then it hits, right? Then it registers. We're going to Disneyland. I'm so ready to go. On their feet, ready to go. And I just had this incredible realization, which is the second observation, uh, is that good news is only good news if you're awake. Turns out if you're asleep, you don't care about good news. Good news means nothing to you when you're asleep. It's only good news if we're paying attention. Does that make sense? Uh, that was the best I could do. I tried to think of some way to make that lodge, uh, and that was the best story I could think of. Uh, good news is only good news to me if I'm paying attention to the fact that it's good news. Does that make sense? If, I, if I'm just ignoring it altogether, then it's just neutral. And what I'm saying is, maybe God is trying to use a difficulty that you're going through, or maybe a period of uncertainty that you're going through, or maybe even a crisis, or a trial, or a frustration. Maybe he's trying to use that to say, hey, look over here. Follow me. I'm God. Come this way. Maybe he's trying to use that. Or maybe God is trying to speak to you through someone who's a spiritual authority in your life. Uh, You ever had someone give you the same piece of advice like 12 times? before you finally took action on it. Uh, Maybe God is trying to speak to you through some of those people, speaking to you, and the message might not be landing uh, because you're asleep. That's happened to me before. Uh, You ever have somebody give you a piece of advice and you don't do it, and then things go horribly wrong, and you're like, that's why they said. Uh, I had this conversation with my mother-in-law the other day. Uh, We were at their house, and we were going to do a project. I'm a doer, okay? Trial and error is my preferred method. If they were going to do this project, like, I'm going to jump in and start doing it. And if it all goes wrong, I'm going to say, man, that was dumb. And then I'm going to start over again. That's just my preferred method. Uh, my father-in-law is a deliberator. He'll think it through. Now, he, he, the fortunate part of that for him is he doesn't, have to, like, uh, he doesn't have to do it three times the way I do. But usually I can do it three times in less time than it takes to do it once if you're a deliberator. Does that make sense? Uh, and uh, so we're, we're wired totally, totally opposite. Uh, what, I'm, what I'm really saying is trial and error can be a real bummer when the stakes are high. And maybe God is saying, hey, just stop for a second and look over this way. I'm trying to show you something better. Maybe God's just trying to use that difficulty to redirect you. But you're like me. 
do, 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 do. I'm just doing it over and over, trial and error, banging my head against the wall without ever stopping and saying, hey, God's over there going like this. Uh, maybe he's just trying to speak to me in that way. So what I would love to do, I'm going to ask the band to come. We're just going to sing a couple of songs in worship before we go just to celebrate what God has done and just spend a few minutes in his presence and kind of just soak up the fact that his grace is unlimited for you no matter how many times you've gone around the trial and error cycle. But can we also pray together today before we do that and just, just open up our hearts and minds to hear from God, open up our hearts and minds to the possibility that God might just want to do something incredible in your life, that he might just want to answer that prayer that you've been bringing to him. We just open up to the possibility that he might want to do something new. That, you know, it's a new year and we always talk about like, oh, this is the year of the whatever kind of change. Maybe this is the year that that actually happens. Uh, Can we just take a minute and just be in his presence and have an open mind to the possibility that God might actually want to do something incredible in our lives? Lord, I just am grateful for your story, the narrative that you're writing throughout human history, but also throughout our individual lives, Lord, that uh, really the goal is for us to be like you and to be with you and to point to your glory. Uh, The goal isn't to just maximize every opportunity and um, have a good life and have success in the things we do. The goal really is for us to know you and enjoy you forever. And so, Lord, I pray that you would help us to just have an awareness of that reality, that we exist for your glory, and that that awareness would just open up our minds to the the possibility that you might actually want to interact with us. You might want to actually have a relationship, and you might want to actually say and do new things in our lives. God, I pray that you would help us to just open up our hearts for possibility. Help us be like Elijah, who was an initiator of possibilities. He was the one who opened the door and said, you know what? The real God's going to step up and he's going to do something. I pray that you give us that kind of faith both right now and throughout this year, Lord. Thank you for your goodness. God, I pray that you'd be blessed by our worship this morning in Jesus' name. Amen. Would you stand with us? recorded in John's gospel. <laughs> uh, it's the first public miracle of Jesus. You might remember it. He, he turns water into wine at a wedding. It's his first public miracle. And something really, really funny happens at this wedding. They, they run out of wine and Jesus's mom is apparently um, serving or helping run this wedding in some way. And uh, she says to Jesus, hey, they're out of wine. She doesn't give like a directive. She doesn't tell him I want you to do a miracle. She doesn't, she doesn't even ask him for it. She just says, hey, they're, they're out of wine. And Jesus is like, no, my time hasn't come. I know what you're asking me to do. My time hasn't come yet. And the funniest thing happens, she totally plays the mom card. She says to the servants and she says, hey, just do whatever he tells you. Like not leaving him an option. And then he does the miracle. And uh, it's funny when you look at this particular situation and you consider Mary... Uh, she didn't make the miracle. What did she do? She created the possibility. She opened the door. She was an initiator of possibility. He could have said no and done nothing. But I think what you'll find is that you read through all different types of scenarios where God did a miracle in the Bible. 
there's somebody who is an initiator of that possibility. So I want to give you this encouragement as you're going out this week, be a person who initiates possibilities. Don't let yourself get in the mindset of, oh, this isn't going to work. Uh, or, you know, I guess I'm just out of luck here. Initiate the possibility for a miracle and see what happens. God, thanks so much for this awesome group of people. They trekked through the snow because they're not afraid. Uh, God, I pray that you would just bless them this week and that you would encourage them by our time together and you would help us to be initiators of your miraculous, life-giving power. Help us cooperate with what you already want to do in Jesus' name. I'm going to throw one last thing at you before you go. If you have been hanging around Center Church, you're like, how do